This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we continue through our Palm Beach Chronicles. We're going to connect a few other pieces in our story today. Because love and breakups can be tough in Palm Beach. In our first episode today, we're going to focus in on the wives of Henry M. Flagler, original developer of Palm Beach. We got into his history a bit in the last episode, but now it gets even messier. We're going to talk about old Henry's love life and his three wives, Mary, Ida Alice, and Mary Lily. It doesn't go well for any of them at all. Let's investigate. All right, friends, we're going to start with just a little bit of biography for Henry Flagler here. He was born January the 2nd in 1830 in Hopewell, New York. At the age of 14, young Henry will head to Bellevue, Ohio to get a job with his cousins. His cousins are the Harknesses. Twelve years later, Henry is going to become a partner in this Harkness business. Henry's first marriage is in 1853. Henry and his half-brother Daniel will marry siblings. Their names are Mary and Isabella. Harkness. Holy cats. Remember, though, that Harkness is another founder of Standard Oil. That's going to come into play in a future investigation. Just make a note here about the name Harkness. Attached to Flagler. Attached to Standard Oil. And all that money. So Henry Flagler is going to marry one of those Harkness sisters. He, Henry, marries Mary Harkness. Mary Harkness was born December 9th, 1833 in Bellevue, Ohio. And Mary is sweet and unpretentious. And during their marriage, beginning in 1853, Mary delivers three children in quick succession. First up is Jenny Louise. She was born in 1855, followed by Carrie, 1858, followed by Harry Harkness Flagler in 1870. Three kids inside of 15 years, sadly. The middle daughter, Carrie, does pass away at a very young age. But by all accounts, Henry and Mary have a wonderful marriage. I guess if he's got one because Henry Flagler's busy, y'all. During this time where he is married to Mary, Mary's having kids, Henry Flagler is, whoa, making his own Gilded Age industrial fortune money. I've taken this next bit from findagrave.com. They did an excellent job writing, taking our Henry Flagler from the North 
to Florida and connecting all of the business stuff in between. So, Henry M. Flagler from Find a Grave, industrialist businessman. He was the co-founder with John D. Rockefeller of Standard Oil Company. By 1890, Henry Flagler was one of the wealthiest men in the world with a personal fortune of over $900 million. Flagler grew up in upstate New York, where he earned only an 8th grade education. At age 14, his stepbrother Daniel Harkness encouraged him to work at a family business in Ohio. By 1852, he was in the grain business, where he became friends with John D. Rockefeller, another grain dealer. Rockefeller wanted to enter the oil business, which was then centered in Cleveland, Ohio. Rockefeller approached Flagler, seeking backing for his new venture. Flagler secured a loan from a family member with the provision he become a partner in the venture. Through this arrangement, Standard Oil of Ohio would eventually be formed. It soon became the dominant company in the oil industry. John Rockefeller would credit the financial acuity of Flagler with putting together the world's largest oil company. In the 1870s, Standard Oil was the dominant leader in the oil industry, producing over 10,000 barrels of oil a day. As profits increased, Rockefeller and Flagler continued to buy out the competition, becoming larger and more dominant, thus creating a monopoly in the oil industry. Congress took notice and in the 1890s began trust-busting to break up the company. In the 1880s, the headquarters had moved from Ohio to New York, which was becoming the leading financial center for the United States. That was a lot of how it all happened, but I think crucial to understand those pieces in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, because that's going to help shape up what happens with Henry's wives. So, Henry Flagler, lots of money, lots of friends Henry has. He's making his fortune in the world. In most of that story, the 1850s through the 1880s, he has done all of that stuff with his first wife, Mary Harkness Flagler, by his side. But sadly, by 1878, Mary Harkness is ill. She's suffering. She has tuberculosis. And Henry Flagler is told by all of his wife's doctors, get thee down to Florida. It'll help Mary. Warmer climate, better weather. Initially, it is Jacksonville, Florida that Henry and Mary go to. Henry Flagler even takes a day trip over to St. Augustine at this time frame and hates it. Remember, Flagler is going to be the one who develops St. Augustine in short order. But in 1878, when he goes down with Mary, he can't stand the place. He'll say, I did not form a very favorable first impression, I must admit. I came here from Jacksonville by way of the river and the Tacoy Railway and got here just at night. The accommodation was very bad, and most of the visitors here were consumptives. I didn't like it and took the first train back to Jacksonville. But Henry's in Florida, 
and in May of 1881, Mary Harkness Flagler will pass away. With her husband, Henry, and her dedicated nurse, Ida Alice Shords, by her side. Henry, maybe, he needs a little bit of consoling. Ida Alice will do this for Henry. Ida Alice will become the second Mrs. Flagler in 1883. It is this wife, Ida Alice, that is with Henry during his wild ride expanding the state of Florida. So 1880s, 1890s, right? Henry wanting to get away from the Standard Oil thing, trust busting. Even after Mary passes away, Henry still really likes the climate and the pace of Florida. Henry also thinks that he can bring an American Riviera to the state. Also, by 1883, Henry is married to Ida Alice. Let me give you a little bit of a background on her. Ida Alice was the daughter of an Episcopalian minister. She was born in 1848. She'll spend her early years in Philadelphia. Ida Alice's father dies when she is just a young child and her family, without that male provider in the structure of the home, was very much subjected to poverty at an age when there are no social services. There's not really a safety net for Ida Alice and her family to fall back on. It's tough times. Ida Alice will have a short career as an actress and then go into nursing to begin to support herself, which is how Ida Alice becomes the private nurse for Mary Harkness Flagler. Now, Ida Alice, though, is Mrs. Henry M. Flagler. And Ida Alice is, y'all, not really a high society broad. And the New York social scene of the day, Ida Alice is just not going to be accepted by her peer group. You got to remember, 1883 is the same year that Alva Vanderbilt is having her ball of the century, right? Like, Ida Alice and Gilded Age New York City money, not going to get along. So what do we do? We're just going to go ahead and build a whole new scene. Ida Alice and Henry honeymoon down in St. Augustine, where plans begin initially for the Ponce de Leon Hotel and other Flagler building structure things happening in St. Augustine around that time. And hey, if we just build our own society place here, Ida Alice can run the whole thing. I mean, if you build it, they will come, and Henry Flagler has that kind of cash for Ida Alice just to be her own self. And for real, Henry dotes on his younger, hot, and sassy wife. She is spirited. He will call her Alicia. He'll even name their 10-horsepower yacht Alicia after her. There is a lot of story to this, and it does all end terribly for Ida Alice. Ida Alice's story as a wife does mash up a bit with Henry's third wife, Mary Lily. So we're going to do the best we can today in keeping the train separate until where they overlap, so to speak. This next bit about poor Ida Alice is from Augustus Mayhew, reporting from New York Social Diary. This is December 29th, 2020. And again, all sources can be found on doneanddone.com. 
Ida Alice, what happens and how does it all go down? This is so dishy, y'all. From Augustus Mayhew. Considering today's divorce settlements afford spousal equal rights protection amended by prenups, postnups, and non-disclosures, Ida Alice Shorts Flagler's jury-rigged Florida divorce and lifelong confinement. <gasps> jury-rigged Florida divorce and lifelong confinement? It's terrible. Next bit. Guided by her husband, Henry M. Flagler, may seem like ancient history, a faded remembrance from when defenseless Victorian women faced an indifferent legal and medical establishment while society looked the other way. But was it actually Mrs. Flagler's babbling Ouija board seances and repeated whispers revealing her husband's indiscretions that exiled her from Mamaronic and St. Augustine mansions to asylum at the remote Pleasantville madhouse? Or was it, as some believed, Henry Flagler had already latched on to a third Mrs. Flagler, making the second Mrs. Flagler's departure a necessity, rather than force Mr. Flagler to endure, quote, the specter of a disturbed wife to torment him, unquote. Whatever the reason, Alice, as her friends and family called her, was put away and largely written out of the story. For the most part, she was played down with the same belittling views as his son, Henry Harry Harkness Flagler, garnered, though with much harsher consequences. There really are no written expressions known to exist that are directly linked to Alice Flagler. Despite numerous secondary reports portraying Alice as irrational and unstable, there were never any known indications that she was deranged or non mentis either during the 1870s, early 1880s, when she shared a New York apartment with her mother, Margaret Shords, or the first 10 years of marriage to Flagler. From St. Augustine to Palm Beach, Henry Flagler's life is memorialized by statues and declarations, even with a museum and college named for him, in contrast to the fate of his three wives. Health concerns plagued Mary Harkness, the mother of his estranged son, Harry. His third wife, Mary Lily Keenan, was doomed to a whirlwind second marriage and a death from mysterious circumstances, although she and her family would inherit the major portion of Flagler's reported $60 million fortune. It was Alice Flagler, however, who was buried for decades behind locked doors and surveillance. Branded as incurably insane, she spent a lifetime under the control of Dr. Carlos Frederick MacDonald, longtime president of the New York Commission in Lunacy and the state's leading criminal alienist. Institutionalized, y'all, this is terrible. Poor, poor Alice. From 1895 until her death in 1930, Alice was closely guarded by Dr. McDonald, who neither a therapist or an analyst acted as her caretaker and spokesperson as she was never heard from again. 35 years, just locked up, because Henry Flagler 
maybe wanted to marry someone else. Or was Alice really insane? These are all good questions. Let's continue from Augustus Mayhew. However much the landscape of marriage and divorce has changed during the past 125 years, Gilded Age wives understood there could be grave consequences if they made allegations against their wealthy autocratic husbands. Was Alice Flagler's captivity something sinister? Or was it a devoted husband doing everything possible his money could buy to arrange for her proper care? Flagler retained a former Florida Supreme Court judge and an ex-governor to deal with the legalities. He made large donations to Florida's state colleges and supported state legislators who introduced, y'all are not ready for this, Flagler's divorce law, making lunacy a cause for divorce, allowing Flagler to waltz the night away with a much more pleasing bride as his ex-wife spent her days being watched and chaperoned by the nation's most recognized insanity authority. Who would ever believe her? How could she ever be cured when her lifetime guardian diagnosed her as incurable? So backing up the bus a little bit, let's get Ida, Alice, and Henry together here. On June the 5th, 1883, a small gathering of family and friends made their way to Madison Avenue Methodist Church to witness the marriage of former actress and nurse Ida Alice Shorts, 35, and 53-year-old widower Henry M. Flagler. The couple reportedly met at the bedside of Flagler's first wife, who was being cared for by Alice until her death in 1881. Whether a bond developed between Alice and Henry in the months before her death or after remains untold. Nonetheless, two years later, they were married despite Standard Oil Swell's apparent cool reception. That December, the couple departed for a belated honeymoon in Jacksonville and St. Augustine. It was this visit and later stays that inspired Flagler's railroad acquisitions and eventually settling in St. Augustine, where he built the Ponce de Leon Hotel, opened in 1888. For Alice Flagler, St. Augustine was idyllic as she became the center of the social swirl. Her dinner dances were RSVP'd by Astors and Vanderbilts. According to a Flagler biographer, it was at one of Alice's soirees that her husband caught the eye of Miss Mary Lily Keenan. Oh my. Flagler and his wife visited Palm Beach in 1893 aboard the 10-horsepower yacht Alicia, just as Alice had promoted her husband's interest in St. Augustine she most likely encouraged his Palm Beach acquisitions and plans, never aware she would never become part of them. Like many others of her clique during the 1890s, Alice dabbled in spiritualism, speaking to reincarnated historical figures from centuries past as if they were sitting next to her. By 1894, her Ouija consultations, or perhaps more problematically here, as well as her open talk of her husband's infidelity, 
led Flagler to share his concerns about her conduct with friends and staff. Flagler's doctor, George G. Shelton, a nose and throat specialist, was consulted. Because of her glib tongue, Dr. Shelton made it a point to place himself in her presence, taking note of what she said according to Sidney Walter Martin in his book, Florida's Flagler. During the fall of 1895, Dr. Shelton, author of Therapeutics of Cough, brought two alienists with him to 685 Fifth Avenue, the Flagler's New York apartment, for their opinion on Alice's continued unruly behavior. Their presence upset her. She became frantic. Well, I wonder why. I think I see what you're doing here, Henry. This is pretty bad. Continuing, according to reports, they advised, quote, she be removed from the home and taken immediately to Choate House, Dr. George C.S. Choate's sanitarium in Pleasantville, located in New York's Central Valley. Built in the mid-1800s, Dr. Choate had added a 10-room wing to his private residence as an exclusive sanitarium for wealthy patients who suffered mental and nervous disorders. His most famous patient had been Horace Greeley, who checked in after losing the 1872 presidential election. When Dr. Choate dies in 1896, the facility was then operated by Dr. Carlos McDonald, who had resigned his position as president of New York's Lunacy Commission in order to open a, quote, high-class sanitarium for the treatment of select cases of mental disease, unquote. I like to translate this to gonna make a lot of money from rich people. However, we continue, Mrs. Flagler was among Dr. Carlos McDonald's first patients, diagnosed by McDonald as having incurable delusional insanity. Several months later, during the spring and summer of 1896, much improved and almost well, Alice underwent a rest cure at Satan's Toe, the Flagler's Orenta Point mansion where she would be watched by a nurse. There was a household staff of 10, porters, waitermen, upstairs maids, parlor maids, cooks, and kitchen men, for the most part, longtime Flagler loyalists. Soon after, Dr. Shelton believed her reason began to fail, and she became, quote-unquote, crazed beyond hope. His affidavit, stated Mrs. Flagler believed she was persecuted. If I was Ida Alice, I would probably feel persecuted too. She was, quote, according to Dr. Shelton, highly excitable, had a nervous temperament, and irrational spiritual beliefs, unquote. Later, three insanity experts diagnosed her as a violent paranoid when they testified during the Florida Supreme Court hearings. Alice's confinement was a stealth undertaking as, quote, the fact that she was insane had been carefully concealed from the public as well as her intimate friends for whom the news will be of shock, unquote. This reports the Buffalo Review in 1899. Imagine Alice's friends never knew she was crazy. Instead, those who asked were told she was experiencing ill health. 
Henry Flagler never saw his wife again, according to several Flagler biographers. Historian Les Standiford described in his book that while Alice's condition supposedly worsened, it did not escape the notice of close friends that one of the world's wealthiest men was spending an unusual amount of time in the company of Mary Ashley, the daughter of Flagler's second cousin, Eliza Wright Ashley, and his divorce lawyer, Eugene Ashley, and her purported travel companion, Mary Lily Keenan. During the winter of 1899, Henry was as far from insanity hearings as possible, spending time in Palm Beach, Nassau, and Miami the last week of February, Septuagenarian Flagler was reported in Nassau, accompanied by three young women, Lockport's Mary Ashley and her neighbor Mary Alice Pomeroy, who would later become Mrs. William Rand Keenan Jr. and Wilmington's Mary Lily Keenan. Mary Lily and William Rand, both Keenans, their brothers and sisters, remember that William Rand is coming back into play in Mary Lily's story. So Henry, <laughs> traveling around with three young ladies, septuagenarian dude, three young hot chicks. Also, continuing from New York Social Diary, that year, Flagler gifted Mary Ashley's mother, Eliza, with $35,000 worth in Standard Oil stock. The following month, the Macon Telegraph reported Henry Flagler made a <laughs> gift of a house to Jesse Keenan, this is Mrs. Joseph Clisby Wise, and her sister, Mary Lily Keenan. The gift of the house was given in appreciation for their friendly relations. The purchase included the Nesbitt House and an adjacent parcel with plans for Flagler to add a suite to the main house and build the finest house in Macon next to it. Jesse also received 200 shares of Standard Oil stock. Jesse is the sister of Mary Lily and William, again, all going to come back around. 200 shares of Standard Oil stock Jesse gets for, you know, being related about Mary Lily, the Macon Telegraph will add, Miss Keenan is not young or beautiful, but she possesses a bright and charming personality. So it is upon the death of Henry Flagler's third wife, Mary Lily, in 1917. So I'm fast forwarding about 20 years here. Jesse's daughter, Mary Louise Wise, Louis Louis Francis, lots of marriages, inherited a large share of her Aunt Mary Lily's estate, including Whitehall. Whitehall is the home that Henry Flagler is going to build for Mary Lily. It now serves as the Flagler Museum. Here's what's highly suspicious. Mary Louise's birth in June of 1895, put that in perspective, caused some to think that perhaps... Mary Louise was Flagler's love child with Mary Lily, as Louise was also the name of Flagler's deceased daughter. In May of 1899, Flagler changed his residency from New York to Florida 
with the New York Supreme Court set to declare Alice insane in the coming weeks. A committee was appointed for her person and estate. Once Ida Alice was declared legally insane, Flagler's Florida campaign began. His divorce lawyer, Eugene Ashley, took over Alice's guardianship. Insanity became a part of Florida divorce law, allowing Henry to divorce during the summer of 1901. Two weeks later, on August 24, 1901, Flagler, 71, married 36-year-old Mary Lily Keenan in Wilmington. Think about that timing just a little bit. Perhaps an illegitimate love child born in 1895. 1895 is the same year Ida Alice is getting seen by alienists and doctors. Goodness, poor Ida Alice. She's left pretty much just shuffled around. She's declared insane for the rest of her life. And the rest of her life reads like a story of, ah, relatives and which relatives lawyers and everybody's getting rich from the fortune that Ida has while she's locked up in the asylum. Flagler did provide one million, two million for Ida Alice's continuing care within that divorce. But that money had doubled, tripled, made it into multiple millions just because it was very smartly invested. So Ida Alice's relatives, and again, her relatives' lawyers, are all trying to take a hunk of that pie. There's no reason to try to release Alice, let her get back to living now that the divorce is done. They will keep her locked up until her death in 1930. It is really, really tragic. A bit of a spider web here, friends. Ida Alice was treated, we know, by that Dr. McDonald. Dr. McDonald, we have encountered him by association before. McDonald was a famous alienist. One of his most famous patients was Harry K. Thaw, murderer of Stanford White, covered many, many moons ago on Done and Done. He's kind of a shady fellow, that Dr. McDonald, and he is going to take a lot of Ida Alice's money. Again, this is from New York Social Diary. Just during the 1920s, Alice Flagler's estate was paying more than $250,000 for her annual family stipends, care, and treatment, including $20,000 in legal fees. While at the time, an alienist billed at $15 hourly for examination observation, diagnosis, and testimony as an expert witness. So 15 bucks an hour, that's the baseline. Dr. McDonald was paid $3,000 monthly, as well as an annual additional payment of $6,000 for special care. It's $40,000 a year, y'all, just for Ida Alice. In addition, McDonald received fees of $3,000 annually for supervising Alice's care, as well as $10,000 yearly just for expenses. So goodness, add another $53,000 a year during the 1920s just for Alice's care. 
Ida Alice will pass away in 1930. Sad, sad story, but remember, Ida Alice got ditched for Mary Lily. And Mary Lily's story? Hoo-hoo! Mary Lily has been floating around the world of Flagler since about 1890. Long time. And Mary Lily will suffer her own mysterious death in 1917. Foul play is most certainly suspected. So let's wrap, let's conclude sweet Ida Alice and talk about Henry Flagler's third wife, Mary Lily Keenan. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Again, dies under very suspicious circumstances in 1917, remarrying after the death of Henry Flagler. Let's get to her first marriage, and then we'll talk about all of that. Oh, Mary Lily. She was born in 1867 in Duplin County, North Carolina, a bit north of Wilmington. Mary Lily is born into a wealthy household. She does get an education, which is a little bit unusual for girls at the time. She's smart. She's pretty. She's charming. Her family will move to Wilmington, North Carolina in the late 1870s. And the family has enough money to (laughs) get Mary Lily up to Newport, Rhode Island, which is, according to rumor, where Mary Lily meets Henry Flagler in 1891. 1890, 1891, Mary Lily is 23. Henry Flagler is 61 years old. Henry Flagler is also seven years into his marriage now with Ida Alice. Naturally, Mary Lily's family is a little bit suspicious of old man Flagler and Mary Lily hanging out, you know, because they're doing that tour together. It's very strange. So Henry can fix this. He will gift two million dollars worth of jewelry and standard oil stock to Mary Lily. Oh, a mansion in Palm Beach too. That's going to be Whitehall. And Henry Flagler really is looking to divorce Ida Alice. But again, not grounds to do this. And Henry Flagler is a dirty, dirty dog. So we know Henry helpfully (laughs) pays off Florida legislators to have insanity declared a legal reason to divorce within the state. Two months later, Henry gets his divorce from Ida Alice. Ten days later, 14 days later, Henry and Mary Lily get married at her family's plantation in 1901. That law to make the divorce legal between Henry and Ida Alice shortly, 
is repealed just right after Henry Flagler got his divorce. Tricky, huh? So now we have Henry and Mary Lily, who have been fooling around now for a decade, finally married in August 1901. She's 33, he's 71, and I guess the marriage is good enough, right? Just for the Standard Oil stock alone, Whitehall's a pretty nice house. And Mary, Lily is young and pretty, and Henry, right, getting a little bit older. But they go on for about 12 years until a very, very bad day for Henry Flagler in 1913 when he will fall down his staircase and die at the age of 83 years old. Mary Lily Keenan Flagler is now the world's richest woman. What happens to this point with Mary Lily is a little bit of a debate and some mystery. Let me assure you it all goes terribly for her. This story is something else and gets into kind of North Carolina high society. I found a wonderful, wonderful piece from Stephanie Murphy Lupo writing for the FortMyers.FloridaWeekly.com. Stephanie Murphy Lupo, she's an author based in West Palm Beach, has written a number of books. She does a piece here, which really is incredible, back August 23rd, 2017 that sort of wraps this whole mystery of Mary Lilly. This article is titled, A Century After Henry Flagler's Widow Died, Questions Remain About Her Death. Oh, goodness, y'all. All right, here we go. Trapped in a block of ice that hasn't melted in 100 years, a unique cold case squirms unlike any whodunit ever. No mystery as to what killed Mary Lily Keenan Flagler Bingham. Yet the ambiguous who and how cloak her saga in intrigue. After Flagler died in 1913, Mary Lily resumed her youthful affair with Robert Worth Bingham of Louisville, Kentucky. They married in November 1916. Lonely in a strange city, Mary Lilly became increasingly ill. Her husband's doctor gave her enough morphine to ensure an addiction. Useful leverage to parlay for Bingham's agenda, which was to keep her quote-unquote totally pacified, until Mary Lilly agreed to add his name to her will, according to Stuart B. McIver, author of Murder in the Tropics. She fainted in her bathtub, had convulsions, and then died suddenly after eight months of marriage. She later was hastily exhumed, at midnight no less, for a secret autopsy, the results of which remain unseen. Would Mary Lilly see the irony of characters material to the above sequence having founded the Order of the Gimgles at the University of North Carolina, or that midnight, graves, and weirdness were the society's watchwords. What the heck is the Order of Gimgles at the University of North Carolina? This one was even a new one to me. I can't even wait to tell you about this, y'all. Back at the University of North Carolina in 1889, 
the Order of Gimgul's was founded by <laughs> Robert Bingham, Mary Lily's new husband trying to steal her fortune, and William Rand Keenan Jr., Mary Lily's brother. They're close friends. They're both Gimgul's. The Order, founded in 1889, centers itself on the legend of Peter Dromgul, a student who mysteriously disappeared from campus in 1833. It's believed to be a social organization. So I consulted our friend Wikipedia for the dirt to find out, like, Order of Gimgul? This is a new one. I've never heard of it before. Wikipedia reveals, The Order of Gimgul is a collegiate secret society headquartered at Hippel or Gimgul Castle in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The order was founded in 1889 by Robert Worth Bingham, Shepard Bryan, William W. Davies, Edward Ray Martin, and Andrew Henry Patterson, who were University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill students at the time. The society is open to notable male students, rising juniors and higher, and faculty members by invitation. The society centers itself around the legend of Peter Dromgul, a student who mysteriously disappeared from campus in 1833. An urban legend evolves surrounding his departure, centering around his love of a Chapel Hill girl known only as Miss Fanny. Supposedly, Dromgul attempted to fight a duel to win Miss Fanny's hand, but was ultimately slain. Retellings of the legend vary from that point, variously stating that Miss Fanny either died of sorrow after visiting his grave every night or held his head in her arms as he passed. In reality, it is believed that Dromgul <laughs> left for Europe after failing his entry exams or joining the army, possibly under the name of his roommate, John Buxton Williams. The legend may have originated, at least partially, from a duel involving Peter's uncle, George C. Dromgul. The founders originally called themselves the Order of Dromgul, but later changed it to the Order of Gimgul, quote, in accord with midnight and graves and weirdness, unquote, according to the archives. Tradition has it that the order held to the Dromgul legend and the ideals of Arthurian knighthood and chivalry. From all accounts, the order is social and believed to have no clandestine agenda. Membership is closed, and information about the order is strictly confidential, as is access to archives less than 50 years old. Okay, super happy, super glad about that no clandestine agenda part, but its founder, Robert Bingham, might be maybe a bit clandestine, as well as Mary Lily's brother, William, a cohort in all of this nonsense that will soon follow. Let us continue our story back to Stephanie Murphy Lupo. Would Mary Lily wonder whether her brother sealed that report, this being her autopsy, as much for good old boy loyalty as to protect the family name? Given that she was dead, the Keenans inherited about $95 million and Bingham was floating blackmail. 
did the family pocket their gauntlet to bury a scandal? Breathless wags fell into a fresh froth over salacious secrets and whispers of murder after a New York headline declared, Mrs. Bingham was drugged. Okay, we're kind of skipping around here, but now we're going to go way, way back in time. Holy cats, the North Carolina roots of both families ran a deep political divide. The Keenans and the Binghams are like the Hatfields and McCoys of North Carolina, y'all. The Keenans arrived in the colonies in the 1760s. A general fought in the American Revolution, and the Keenans helped to found UNC at Chapel Hill. These planters and merchants owned Cape Fear River acreage, handy for selling timber. Their social swath rippled outward from a Keenansville plantation. The Binghams arrived in the 1780s, so 20 years later, and established the Bingham School. A headmaster taught languages at UNC. The early clans sparred in a colonial mirror, patriots versus royalists. Both families owned slaves, and some Binghams were abolitionists, a parallel run-up to the Civil War. Robert Worth Bingham was the fourth generation to attend UNC, although the Keenans blackballed many on political principle. The author MacIver said a classmate called Robert Bingham the social lion of our day. A womanizer, lady killer, he later enrolled at the University of Virginia. At a dance in 1890, I love the way Stephanie Lupo writes this, handsome met voluptuous. So here we have Robert and Mary Lily meeting and the rest from 1890 is history and tragedy. Mary Lily tells the New Bernian, the two had an affair that year, an exercise involving hormones and a youthful rebellion over their family feud. Mary Lily and Robert have fallen for each other at a young age in 1890. But seeing few acceptable suitors for their eldest daughter, Mary Lily's parents arranged invitations to promising social stages such as Newport, Rhode Island. Their Wilmington buddy, Pembroke Jones, hosted her there in 1891, where his friend, railroad tycoon Henry Walters, introduced young Mary Lilly to his friend, railroad tycoon Henry Flagler. Mary Lilly was 23, Flagler was 60 and married, yet their mutual interest was so strong, he plotted away to discard his mentally unstable wife, Ida Alice. After testimony about Ida Alice's Ouija board's message of a Russian czar lover and her attempt to stab a doctor with scissors, the amenable Florida legislature passed a law making insanity grounds for divorce. Back in Louisville, Robert Bingham married Eleanor Miller, pursued law and politics, became a judge, and piled up debts. Per McIver, arrogance and shady deals doomed his first efforts at politics, and his mother-in-law frowned on his improprieties in the handling 
of collateral for a family business. What's happening with Mary Lilly? She and Henry Flagler will meet as circumstances permit. In 1896, Henry demonstrated his devotion with a gift of $1 million in Standard Oil stock, born the previous year a possible love child, Mary Louise, was raised as the daughter of Mary Lilly's married sister, Jessie Wise, and society accepted the faint. In Across Fortune's Tracks, a biography of William Rand Keenan Jr., author Walter E. Campbell cited reports that Louise was not Wise's daughter, but the illegitimate offspring of Mary Lilly Keenan and Henry Flagler. Another author, William E. Ellis, refers to the couple having kept company with each other for several years, none too secretly, and of Mary Lilly having lived with and then married Flagler. Within weeks of Henry's 1901 divorce from Ida Alice, Mary Lilly and Henry marry in Kenansville. During a dozen happy years, Mary Lilly shares Henry's triumphs. Okay. We've heard about a lot of that. Let's continue. In April 1913, Robert Bingham's wife, remember Eleanor, committed suicide by leaping from a moving car at a railroad crossing. Three weeks later, Henry Flagler died of complications from a fall. His widow, Mary Lilly, now 46 years old, inherited about $100 million and a seat at the table of Standard Oil. This is where it gets super shady. Robert Bingham's anxious creditors suggested that he visit his former lover. Thus motivated, he tracked her to Asheville and rekindled the old dalliance. They married in New York City, ironically at the home of Pembroke and Sarah Jones. Mary Lilly's only attendant was Louise Wise, whom Mary Lilly had publicly named as heir to the bulk of the Flagler fortune. This would be Mary Lilly's perhaps daughter, maybe perhaps niece, more than likely daughter, Louise Wise. So they get married, and you think, hey, great, reunited, it feels so good, but no, no, no. Suddenly, the vibrant Mrs. Bingham was complaining of chest pains. Instead of calling a heart specialist, Bingham recruited his friend and dermatologist, Dr. Michael Leo Ravitch. They moved Mary Lilly to a hotel where Ravitch treated her with frequent injections of morphine, wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author David L. Chandler in The Binghams of Louisville, the dark history behind one of America's great fortunes. At one point, William Davies, Bingham's lawyer and fellow Gimgool oversaw Mary Lilly's signature, altering her will to give her husband an additional $5 million upon her death. Robert Bingham brings Mary Lilly home, where his house guest, Dr. Michael Leo Ravitch, ramped up morphine doses, writes McIver. 
Even after she was unconscious in her bathtub, she received morphine. Her body contained the opiate in abundance, plus traces of adrenaline and arsenic. Newspapers reported acute heart disturbance. Rumors suggested murder, complicity, her husband's reprehensible behavior, and shouts of malpractice towards Ravitch. In House of Dreams, The Binghams of Louisville, author Marie Brenner was even-handed, lacking conclusive evidence, quote, that Bingham actually murdered Mary Lilly, the events of her first and only year in Louisville leave little doubt that the judge was dangerously irresponsible toward a very sick woman, unquote. Bingham huh, pointed some sharp arrows at Mary Lilly's family, the Keenans. Remember, they've been fighting now for, I don't know, six, seven generations. The Keenans didn't cotton to losing $5 million. Naturally, they are suspicious at the cause of death, yet appalled the Keenans are when the judge mentions his wife's taste for brandy and bourbon. Shepard Bryan, another Gimgul, was Robert's liaison in those discussions. The Keenans contest Mary Lilly's will. They hire private detectives and arrange for a secret autopsy recruiting pathologists from three cities to collect tissue samples. An 1897 article in the Los Angeles Times with the headline, Ghastly Drama, cited their mission. They arrived at the Wilmington Cemetery and curtained limousines at midnight and departed hastily to catch a train. The Keenans abruptly dropped their challenges and locked away the evidence. The ensuing tabloid frenzy grew volcanic by the 1980s when Crown Publishing Group released Chandler's book. He wrote that Mary Lilly probably died of complications from tertiary syphilis and likely got it from Robert Bingham after he contracted it in college. In that era, dermatologists treated syphilis, one reason Bingham did not call in a cardiologist. Dr. Ravitch, an expert in treating syphilis, was the judge's, Robert's, go-to doctor. In July of 1918, Robert Bingham uses the first installment of his inheritance to buy the Louisville Courier-Journal and built the newspaper into a journalistic dynasty that lasted seven decades. Having gained the favor of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Bingham became ambassador, what, to the court of St. James in 1932. He died five years later of Hodgkin's disease and or syphilis, according to his granddaughter, author Sally Bingham. In for a penny, in for a pound, let's go ahead and finish this out. Sally Bingham's blog refers to the second autopsy's report conclusion that an overdose of Salverson had killed Mary Lilly. The potentially deadly magic bullet was then used to treat syphilis. He killed her, didn't he? Sally said in her personal campaign for a bit of justice for Mary Lilly, openly critical of the interminable scandal-shielding facade. 
Emily Bingham, Robert's great-granddaughter, wrote Irrepressible, The Jazz Age Life of Henrietta Bingham, in homage to her great-aunt. She leaned towards Robert Bingham's innocence, but wrote, Roosevelt himself gleefully called his ambassador my favorite murderer. Emily said, Dr. Ravitch later demanded money, writing the judge, I'm really sorry that I ever consented to do for you what I did. Augustus Mayhew browsed Emily's book for any fresh facts on the closely guarded grassy knoll circumstances surrounding the cryptic fast-track death of Mary Lilly. A New York Times review in 2015 noted that Mary Lilly promptly died under murky, Michael Jackson-esque circumstances involving a shady doctor and copious narcotics. Avowed feminist Sally Bingham certainly bested the men in the standoff for their newspaper empire. She also railed at generations, having sullied the woman whose money enabled their fortune. In her book, Passion and Prejudice, a Family Memoir, Sally says Bingham bought the newspapers, quote, to ferret out other people's secrets while closely guarding our own. Mary Lilly died of a combination of causes that included depression, neglect, and medical incompetence, the failure of love, isolation, and a heart probably weakened by the syphilis she had contracted from the judge. She also died because she would not, for a long time, give the man his money, unquote. The judge, Robert Bingham, his grandson, Worth Bingham III, died at age 34 in a freak accident in Nantucket. Robert W. Bingham IV died at age 33 of a heroin overdose in his Tribeca loft. Louise Wise, remember Henry Flagler's favorite niece, or love child, inherited Whitehall in Palm Beach. This is the mansion that Henry Flagler builds for his Mary Lily. Louise Wise also inherits Kirkside in St. Augustine, money and securities. In 1920, Louise Wise and her husband, Lawrence Lewis Sr., named their baby daughter Mary Lily Flagler Lewis and called her Molly. When the trust in Mrs. Bingham's will settled in 1937, Louise set up the Flagler Nursery School for underprivileged children in St. Augustine. Louise died that same year of a suspected drug overdose. Louise's daughter Molly, later in life Mrs. James L. Wiley, at one time was a principal of the company, which still owns the Breakers. When Molly died at the age of 90, her two sons lived in Virginia. Little bit of a note here, the Breakers is still owned by the Keenan family. We talked about club memberships. The Breakers, anyone really can stay at their packages. It's a nice hotel, but there is a social membership way that you can get into the Breakers. Very affordable. This is from Racket Source. $6, a veritable bargain. If you want to play golf at the Breakers, the Lady Golfer membership is about 450 bucks. Student golfer, about 150 Junior golfer, 50 bucks. A bowler membership, 
will run you 50 as well. The latest number I could find in 2018 if you wanted to play around a golf at the Breakers. It's going to cost you $85. If you want a cart to go with that round of golf, it'll be about $235. Oh my, y'all, what a story. Henry Flagler, poor Mary Harkness, passes away of tuberculosis, poor Ida Alice, locked up for 35 years, poor Mary Lily, marries her first true love and then he kills her? Like, ah, it's all terrible. Love is very, very hard. What a ride. This was a little bit long ago. We're going to come back in the next episode with a few more infamous divorces from Palm Beach as we continue our Palm Beach Chronicles this month of February on Done and Done. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you listening, tuning in, telling your friends for your kind reviews, for your emails, and for your support on Patreon. Y'all are simply the best. I hope you stay curious and keep on investigating. More investigation on the way, friends. Big love. Bye. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.